Today I'll read you uh, two beginnings from two great uh, first or early books from two different, very different writers. Uh, the first is uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle by George Higgins, which came out in 1970 and was later made into a really great uh, movie starring Robert Mitchum. Here it goes. Jackie Brown, at 26, with no expression on his face, said that he could get some guns. I can get your pieces probably by tomorrow night. I can get you probably six pieces tomorrow night. In a week or so, maybe ten days, another dozen. I got a guy coming with at least ten of them, but I already talked to another guy about four of them. And he's, you know, expecting them. He's got something to do, so six tomorrow night, another dozen in a week. The stocky man sat across from Jackie Brown and allowed his coffee to grow cold. I don't know as I like that, he said. I don't know as I like buying stuff from the same lot as somebody else. Like, I don't know what he's going to do with it, you know? If it was to cause trouble to my people on account of somebody else having some from the same lot, well, it could cause trouble for me, too. I understand, Jackie Brown said. People who got, a, got out early from work went by in the November afternoon, hurrying. The crippled man hawked records, annoying people by crying at them from his skate-wheeled dolly. You don't understand the way I understand, the stocky man said. I got certain responsibilities. Look, Jackie Brown said, I tell you I understand. Did you get my name or didn't you? I got your name. Well, all right. All right, nothing. I wish I'd had a nickel for every name I got that was all right. I wish I did. Look at this. The stocky man extended the fingers of his left hand over the gold-speckled Formica tabletop. You know what that is? Your hand, Jackie Brown said. I hope you look closer at guns than you look at that hand, the stocky man said. Look at your own goddamn hand. Jackie Brown extended the fingers of his left hand. Yeah, he said. Count your fucking knuckles. All of them? Ah, Christ. Count as many of them as you want. I got four more. One on each finger. Know how I got those? I bought some stuff from a man that I had his name. And he got traced. And the man I bought it for, he went to MCI Walpole for 15 to 25. Still in there. But he had some friends. I got an extra set of knuckles. Shut my hand in a drawer. Then one of them stomped the door shut, hurt like a fucking bastard. He got no idea how it hurt. Jesus, Jackie Brown said. What made it hurt worse for knowing what they were going to do to you, you know? There you are. They tell you, very matter of fact, that you made somebody mad. You made a big mistake. And now there's somebody doing time for it. <clears throat> it isn't anything personal, you understand. But it just has to be done. Now get your hand out there. You think about not doing it, you know? 
I was in Sunday school when I was a kid, and this nun says to me, stick out your hand. The first few times I'd do it, she whacks me right across the knuckles with a steel-edged ruler. It was just like that. So one day I says, when she tells me, put out your hand, I say no. And she whaps me right across the face with that ruler. Same thing. Except these guys weren't mad. They aren't mad at you, you know? Guys you see all the time. Maybe guys you didn't like. Maybe guys you did. Had some drinks with. Maybe looked out for the girls. Hey, look, Polly. Nothing personal, you know? You made a, you made a mistake. The hand. I don't want to have to shoot you, you know? So you stick out the hand and you get get to put out the hand you want. I take the left because I'm right-handed and I know what's going to happen. Like I say, and they put your fingers in the drawer and then one of them kicks it shut. Ever hear bones breaking? Just like a man snapping a shingle. Hurts like a bastard. Jesus. That's what I mean, the stocky man said. I had a cast on for almost a month. Weather gets damp, it still hurts. I can't bend them fingers, so I don't care what your name is, who gave it to me. I had the other guy's name, and that didn't help my goddamn fingers. Name isn't enough. I get paid for being careful. What I want now is what happens one of the other guns from this bunch gets traced. Am I going to have to start pricing crutches? This is serious business, you know. I don't know who been selling who you've been selling to before, but the fellow says you got guns to sell and I need guns. I'm just protecting myself. Just being smart. What happens when the man with the four gives one to somebody uses it to shoot a goddamn cop? I gotta leave town. No, Jackie Brown said. No, the stocky man said. Okay, I hope you're right about that. I'm running short of fingers. And if I gotta leave town, my friend, you gotta leave town. You understand that? They'll do it to me, they'll do worse to you. You know that. I hope you do. I don't know who you've been selling to, but I can tell you, these guys are different. You can't trace these guns. I guarantee it. Tell me how come. Look, these are new guns. Follow me. Proof, test firing's all they've ever had. Brand fucking new guns. Air weights, shrouded hammers, floating firing pins. You could drop one of these right on the hammer with a round in the chamber. Nothing. 38 specials. I'm telling you, it's good stuff. Stolen, the stocky man said. Serial numbers filed off. That's how I got caught before. They got this bath they dropped the stuff in. Raises the numbers right back again. You better do better than that. Neither one of us will be able to shake hands. No, they got serial numbers. Man gets caught with one of them. Perfectly alright, no sweat. No way to tell it's stolen. Brand new gun. With a serial number, this document said. You look up the serial number. It's a military police model, made in 1951, shipped to Rock Island. 
Never reported stolen. But it's a brand new detective special. Never reported stolen either. You got somebody in the plant that's documented instead. I got guns to sell. I've done a lot of business and I had very few complaints. I can get you four inches and two inches. You just tell me what you want. I can deliver it. How much? Depends on the lot. Depends on what I'm willing to pay, too, the stocky man said. How much? Eighty. Eighty? You ever sell guns before? Eighty's way too high. I'm talking about 30 guns here now. I can go into a goddamn store and buy 30 guns for 80 piece. We got to talk some more about price. I can see that. I'd like to see you go into a store and order up 30 pieces. I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you got in mind, and I don't need to know. But I would sure like to be there when you tell the man you got some friends in the market for 30 pieces and you want a discount. I would like to see that. The FBI'd be onto your phone before you got the money out. It's more than one gun store, you know. Not for you, there isn't. I can tell you right now, there isn't anybody for a hundred miles that can put up the goods like I can. And you know it. So no more of that shit. I never went over 50 before, the stocky man said. I'm not going that high now. You haven't got that many guys around wanting to take 30 either. And if these work all right, I'll be coming back for more. You're used to dealing twos and threes. That's why you want to deliver three or four times. I can sell 50 tomorrow without ever seeing you, Jackie Brown said. I can't get my hands on them fast enough. I can sell every gun I can get. I bet if I was to go down to the shrine there and go to confession, I'd get three Hail Marys and the priest had asked me confidentially, if I could get him something light, he could carry under his coat. People are desperate for guns. I had a guy last week that was hot for a python, and I got him this big fucking Blackhawk, six-incher, 41 mag, and he took it like he'd been looking for it all his life. Should have seen that bastard going out, big lump under his coat. Looked like he was stealing melons. I had a guy seriously ask me, could I get him a few machine guns? He'd go a buck and a half apiece for as many as I could get. Didn't even care what caliber. What color was he, the stocky man asked. He was a nice fellow, Jackie Brown said. I wouldn't be surprised if I was able to get something for him in a week or so. Good material, too. M16's in very nice shape. I've never been able to understand a man that wanted to use a machine gun. It's life if you get hooked with it, and you can't really do much of anything with it except fight a war, maybe. You can't hide it, and you can't carry it around in a car, and you can't hit anything with a goddamn thing unless you don't mind shooting out a couple of walls getting the guy, which is risky. I don't care much for a machine gun. The best all-around item I ever saw is the Forge Smith. Now that is a fine piece of machinery. You can heft it, and it goes where you point it. It's too big for a lot of people, Jackie Brown said. I had a man that wanted a couple of 
38s a week or so ago. And I come up with one of those in a Colt two-incher. He liked the Colt all right, but he was all edgy about the Smith. I asked him, asked me if I thought he was going to go around wearing a fucking holster or something. But he took it just the same. Look, I want 30 guns. I'll take four inchers and two inchers. 38s, I'll take a 357 mag if I have to. 30 pieces, I'll give you 1200. Balls, Jackie Brown said. Gotta have at least 70, 70 apiece. I'll go 1500. Split the difference, Jackie Brown said. 1800. I'll have to see the stuff. Sure, Jackie Brown said. His expression changed. He smiled. Now here's uh, Wait Until Spring Bandini by John Fonte, originally published in 1938. It's probably what best known for Ask the Dust uh, and big influence on people like uh, Bukowski and many others. He came along kicking the deep snow. Here was a disgusted man. His name was Svevo Bandini, and he lived three blocks down that street. He was cold, and there were holes in his shoes. That morning, he had patched the holes on the inside with pieces of cardboard from a macaroni box. The macaroni in that box was not paid for. He had thought of that as he placed the cardboard inside of his shoes. He hated the snow. He was a bricklayer, and the snow froze the mortar between the brick he laid. He was on his way home, but what was the sense in going home? When he was a boy in Italy, in Abruzzi, he hated the snow too. No sunshine, no work. He was in America now, in the town of Rockland, Colorado. He had just been in the Imperial Pool Hall. In Italy, there were mountains too like those white mountains a few miles west of him. The mountains were a huge white dress dropped plumb-like to the earth. Twenty years before, when he was twenty years old, he had starved for a full week in the folds of that savage white dress. He had been building a fireplace in a mountain lodge. It was dangerous up there in the winter. He had said the devil with the danger because he was only 20 then, and he had a girl in Rockland, and he needed the money. But the roof of the lodge had caved beneath the suffocating snow. It harassed him always, that beautiful snow. He could never understand why he didn't go to California. Yet he stayed in Colorado, in the deep snow, because it was too late now. The beautiful white snow was like the beautiful white wife of Svevo Bandini. So white, so fertile, lying in a white bed in a house up the street, 456 Walnut Street, Rockland, Colorado. Svevo Bandini's eyes watered in the cold air. They were brown, they were soft, they were a woman's eyes. At birth he had stolen them from his mother, for after the birth of Svevo Bandini, his mother was never quite the same, always ill, always with sickly eyes after his birth. And then she died, and it was Svevo's turn to carry soft brown eyes. 150 pounds was the weight of Svevo Bandini, and he had a son named Arturo who loved to touch his round shoulders 
and feel for the snakes inside. He was a fine man, Svevo Bandini, all muscles, and he had a wife named Maria who had only to think of the muscle in his loins, and her body and her mind melted like the spring snows. She was so white, that Maria, and looking at her was seeing her through a film of olive oil. Dio cane, Dio cane. It means God is a dog, and Svevo Bandini was saying it to the snow. Why did Svevo lose $10 in a poker game tonight at the Imperial Pool Hall? He was such a poor man, and he had three children, and the macaroni was not paid, nor was the house in which the three children and the macaroni were kept. God is a dog. Svevo Bandini had a wife who never said, Give me money for food for the children. But he had a wife with large black eyes, sickly bright from love. And those eyes had a way about them, a sly way of peering into his mouth, into his ears, into his stomach, and into his pockets. Those eyes were so clever in a sad way, for they always knew when the Imperial Pool Hall had done a good business. Such eyes for a wife. They saw all he was and all he hoped to be, but they never saw his soul. That was an odd thing, because Maria Bandini was a woman who looked upon all the living and the dead as souls. Maria knew what a soul was. A soul was an immortal thing she knew about. A soul was an immortal thing she would not argue about. A soul was an immortal thing. Well, whatever it was, a soul was immortal. Maria had a white rosary, so white you could drop it in the snow and lose it forever. And she prayed for the soul of Svevo Bandini and her children. And because there was no time, she hoped that somewhere in this world, someone, a nun in some quiet convent, Someone, anyone, found time to pray for the soul of Maria Bandini. He had a white bed waiting for him, in which his wife lay, warm and waiting. And he was kicking the snow and thinking of something he was going to invent someday. Just an idea he had in his head, a snowplow. He made a miniature of it out of cigar boxes. He had an idea there. And then he shuddered as you do when cold metal touches your flank. And he was suddenly remembering the many times he had got into the warm bed beside Maria. The tiny cold cross on her rosary touched his flesh on winter nights like a tittering little cold serpent. And how he was, and how he withdrew quickly to an even colder part of the bed. And then he thought of the bedroom, of the house that was not paid for of the white wife endlessly waiting for passion, and he could not endure it, and straight away in his fury he plunged into deeper snow off the sidewalk, letting his anger fight it out with the snow. Dio cane, Dio cane. He had a son named Arturo, and Arturo was 14 and owned a sled. As he turned into the yard of his house that was not paid for, his feet suddenly raced for the tops of the trees. He was lying on his back, and Arturo's sled was still in motion, sliding into a clump of snow-weary lilac bushes. Dio cane, 
He had told that boy, that little bastard, to keep his sled out of the front walk. Svevo Bandini felt the snow's cold attacking his hands like frantic ants. He got to his feet, raised his eyes to the sky, shook his fists at God, and nearly collapsed with fury. That Arturo, that little bastard, he dragged the sled from beneath the lilac bush and with systematic fiendishness tore the runners off. Only when the destruction was complete did he remember that the sled had cost seven fifty. He stood brushing the snow from his clothes. That strange hot feeling in his ankles, where the snow had entered from the tops of his shoes. Seven dollars and fifty cents torn to pieces. Diavolo. Let the boy buy another sled. He preferred a new one anyway. The house was not paid for. It was at his enemy, that house. It had a voice. It was always talking to him, parrot-like. Forever chattering the same thing. Whenever his feet made the porch floor creak, the house said insolently, You do not you do not own me, Svebo Bandini, and I will never belong to you. Whenever he touched the front doorknob, it was the same. For fifteen years that house had heckled him and exasperated him with its idiotic independence. There were times when he wanted to set dynamite under it and blow it to pieces. Once it had been a challenge, that house so like a woman, taunting him to possess her. But in thirteen years, he had wearied and weakened, and the house had gained in its arrogance. Svevo Bandini no longer cared. The banker who owned that house was one of his worst enemies. The image of that banker's face made his heart pound with a hunger to consume itself in violence. Elmer the banker, the dirt of the earth. Time and again he had been forced to stand before Elmer and say that he had not enough money to feed his family. Helmer, with neatly parted gray hair, with the soft hands, the banker eyes that looked like oysters, when Suevo Bandini said he had no money to pay the installment on his house. He had had to do that many times, and the soft hands of Helmer unnerved him. He could not talk to that kind of man. He hated Helmer. He would like to break Helmer's neck, to tear out Helmer's heart, and jump on it with both feet. Of Helmer, he would think and mutter, the day is coming, the day is coming. It was not his house, and he had but to touch the knob to remember it did not belong to him. Her name was Maria, and the darkness was light before her black eyes. He tiptoed to the corner and a chair there, near the window with the green shade down, when he seated himself, both knees clicked. It was like the tinkling of two bells to Maria, and he thought how foolish for a wife to love a man so much. The room was so cold. Funnels of vapor tumbled from his breathing lips. He grunted like a wrestler with his shoelaces. Always trouble with his shoelaces. Diavolo. Would he be an old man on his deathbed before he ever learned to tie his shoelaces like other men? Svevo, yes. Don't break them, Svevo. Turn on the light and I'll untie them. 
Don't get mad and break them. God in heaven, sweet Mother Mary, wasn't that just like a woman? Get mad? What was there to get mad about? Oh God, he felt like smashing his fist through that window. He gnawed with his fingernails at the knot of his shoelaces. Shoelaces? Why did there have to be shoelaces? Uh, uh, uh. Svevo? Yes. I'll do it. Turn on the light. When the cold has hypnotized your fingers, a knotted thread is an obstinate as barbed wire. With the might of his arm and shoulder, he vented his impatience. The lace broke with a cluck sound as Favo Bandini almost fell out of his chair. He sighed, and so did his wife. Ah, Favo, you broke them again. Bah, he said. Do you expect me to go to bed with my shoes on? He slept naked. He despised underclothing. But once a year, with the first flurry of snow, he always found a long underwear laid out for him on the chair in the corner. Once he had sneered at this protection. That was the year he had almost died of influenza and pneumonia. That was the winter when he had risen from the deathbed, delirious with fever, disgusted with pills and syrups, and staggered to the pantry, choked down his throat a half dozen garlic bulbs, and returned to bed to sweat it out with death. Maria believed her prayers had cured him, and thereafter his religion of cures was garlic. But Maria maintained that garlic came from God, and that was too pointless for Svevo Bandini to dispute. He was a man, and he hated the sight of himself in long underwear. She was Maria, and every blemish on his underwear, every button, every thread, every odor, and every touch made the points of her breast ache with a joy that came out of the middle of the earth. They had been married fifteen years, and he had a tongue and spoke well and often of this and that, but rarely had he ever said, I love you. She was his wife, and she spoke rarely, but she tired him often with her constant, I love you. He walked to the bedside, pushed his hands beneath the covers, and groped for that wandering rosary. Then he slipped between the blankets and seized her frantically. His arms pinioned around hers, his legs locked around hers. It was not passion. It was only the cold of a winter night. And she was a small stove of a woman whose sadness and warmth had attracted him from the first. Fifteen winters, night upon night, and a woman warm and welcoming to her body, feet like ice, hands and arms like ice. He thought of such love and sighed. And a little while ago, the Imperial Pool Hall had taken his last ten dollars. If only this woman had some fault to cast a hiding shadow upon his own weaknesses. Take Teresa Dorenzo. He would have married Teresa Dorenzo, except that she was extravagant. She talked too much, and her breath smelled like a sewer. And she, a strong, muscular woman, liked to pretend watery weakness in his arms. To think of it. And Teresa Dorenzo was taller than he. Well, with a wife like Teresa, he could enjoy giving the Imperial Pool Hall $10 in a poker game. He could think of that breath, that chattering mouth, and he could thank God for a chance to waste his hard-earned money. But not Maria.
Arturo broke the kitchen window, she said. Broke it? How? He pushed Federico's head through it. The son of a bitch. He didn't mean it. He was only playing. And what did you do? Nothing, I suppose. I put iodine on Federico's head. A little cut. Nothing serious. Nothing serious? What do you mean, nothing serious? What'd you do to Arturo? He was mad. He wanted to go to the show. And he went. Kids like shows. The dirty little son of a bitch. Svevo, why talk like that? Your own son. You spoiled him. You spoiled them all. He's like you, Svevo. You were a bad boy, too. I was like hell. You didn't catch me pushing my brother's head through a window. You didn't have any brothers, Svevo. But you pushed your father down the steps and broke his arm. Could I help it if my father... Oh, forget it. He wriggled closer and pushed his face into her braided hair. Ever since the birth of August, their third son, his wife's right ear had an odor of chloroform. She had brought it home from the hospital with her ten years ago. Or was it his imagination? He had quarreled with her about this for years, for she always denied there was a chloroform odor in her right ear. Even the children had experimented, and they had failed to smell it. Yet it was there, always there, just as it was that it was that night in the ward when he bent down to kiss her after she had come out of it, so near death, yet alive. What if I did push my father down the steps? What's that got to do with it? Did it spoil you? Are you spoiled? How do I know? You're not spoiled. What the hell kind of thinking was that? Of course he was spoiled. Teresa Dorenzo had always told him he was vicious and selfish and spoiled. He used to delight him. And that girl, what was her name? Carmela. Carmela Ricci, the friend of Rocco Saccone. She thought he was a devil. And she was wise. She had been through college, the University of Colorado a college graduate. She had said he was a wonderful scoundrel, cruel, dangerous, a menace to young women. But Maria, oh Maria, she thought he was an angel, pure as bread. Bah! What did Maria know about it? She had had no college education. Why should she not even finish high school? Not even high school. Her name was Maria Bandini, but before she married him, her name was Maria Toscana, and she never finished high school. She was the youngest daughter in a family of two girls and a boy, Tony and Teresa, both high school graduates. But Maria? The family curse was upon her, the slowest of all the Toscanas, this girl who wanted things her own way and refused to graduate from high school. The ignorant Toscana, the one without a high school diploma, almost a diploma, three and a half years, but still no diploma. Tony and Teresa had them, and Carmela Ricci, the friend of Rocco, had even gone to the University of Colorado. God was against him. Of them all, 
Why had she? Why had he fallen in love with this woman at his side, this woman without a high school diploma? Christmas will soon be here, Svevo, she said. Say a prayer. Ask God to make it a happy Christmas. Her name was Maria, and she was always telling him something he already knew. Didn't he know without being told that Christmas would soon be here? Here it was, the night of December 5th. When a man goes to sleep beside his wife on a Thursday night, is it necessary for her to tell him the next day would be Friday? And that boy, Arturo, why was he cursed with a son who played with a sled? Ah, povera America. He should pray for a happy Christmas. Bah, are you warm enough, Suevo? There she was, always wanting to know if he was warm enough. She was a little over five feet tall, and he never knew whether she was sleeping or waking. She was that quiet. A wife like a ghost, always content in her little half of the bed, saying the rosary and praying for a Merry Christmas. Was it any wonder that he couldn't pay for this house, this madhouse occupied by a wife who was a religious fanatic? A man needed a wife to goad him on, inspire him, and make him work hard. But Maria? Ah, povera America. She slipped from her side of the bed. Her toes with sure precision found the slippers on the rug in the darkness. And he knew she was going to the bathroom first and to inspect the boys afterward. The final inspection before she returned to bed for the rest of the night. A wife who was always slipping out of bed to look at her three sons. Ah, such a life. Io sono fregato. How could a man get any sleep in this house? Always in a turmoil. His wife always getting out of bed without a word. God damn the imperial pool hall. A full house. Queens on deuces. And he had lost. Madonna. And he should pray for a happy Christmas. With that kind of luck, he should even talk to God. Jesu Christi, if God really existed, let him answer. Why? As quietly as she had gone, she was beside him again. Federico has a cold, she said. He too had a cold in his soul. His son Federico could have a snivel, and Maria would rub menthol on his chest and lie there half the night talking about it. But Svevo Bandini suffered alone, not with an aching body, worse with an aching soul. Where upon the earth was the pain greater than in your soul? Did Maria help him? Did she ever ask him if he suffered from the hard times? Did she ever say, Svevo, my beloved, how is your soul these days? Are you happy, Svevo? Is there any chance for work this winter, Svevo? Dio maledetto. And she wanted a Merry Christmas. How can you have a Merry Christmas when you're alone among three sons and a wife? Holes in your shoes, bad luck at cards, no work, break her neck on a goddamn sled and you want a Merry Christmas? Was he a millionaire? He might have been if he had married the right kind of woman. Heh, he was too stupid though. Her name was Maria. He felt the softness of the bed recede beneath him. And he had to smile, for he knew she was coming nearer. And his lips opened a little to receive them. Three fingers of a small hand, touching his lips, lifting him to a warm land inside the sun. 
and then she was blowing her breath faintly into his nostrils from pouted lips. Cara esposa, he said. Dear wife. Her lips were wet, and he, she rubbed them against his eyes. He laughed softly. I'll kill you, he whispered. She laughed, then listened, poised, listened for a second, of the boys wait awake in the next room. Kiss sera sera, she said. What must be, must be. Her name was Maria, and she was so patient, waiting for him, touching the muscle at his loins, so patient, kissing him here and there. Then the great heat he loved consumed him, and she lay back. Asveo, so wonderful. He loved her with such gentle fierceness, so proud of himself, thinking all the time, she's not so foolish, this Maria. She knows what is good. The big bubble they chased toward the sun exploded between them, and he groaned with joyous release, groaned like a man glad he had been able to forget for a little while so many things. And Maria, very quiet in her little half of the bed, listened to the pounding of her heart and wondered how much he had lost at the Imperial Pool Hall. A great deal, no doubt, possibly ten dollars, for Maria had no high school diploma, but she could read that man's misery in meter of his passion. Svevo, she whispered, but he was sound asleep.